Well, good morning, Crossroads. What's so funny? <laughs> My name is Lance. I'm the creative arts pastor here. Uh, are you guys enjoying your ice cream? All right. Last night it was just like, mm, I think people were still eating it. Uh, well, hey, I'm so glad to be here as we start this brand new series called Manger Things and draw some intriguing lines between the biblical Christmas story and the popular Netflix series Stranger Things. Uh, so Becca asked, we have some Stranger Things fans in the house, right? Awesome. Uh, as you may have guessed from my attire, I am a huge fan of the show. I love it. Uh, and I figured, you know what, if Becca gets to dress up, so do I, okay? Uh, and actually, I wanted to dress up like my favorite character, uh, but I couldn't find 11 costumes in my size. Uh, so I went with my wife's favorite character, Hopper. I was like, kind of hoping maybe she'd be like, oh, that's nice. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> It didn't work out. Anyway, so uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the show, uh, let me give you a brief synopsis, okay? Stranger Things focuses on a group of young teens in the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana. Uh, something strange happens in Hawkins, as the title suggests, uh, and these courageous kids, this group of kids, they befriend a mysterious young girl with psychokinetic powers who escapes from a nearby lab. Uh, they rescue one of their own from the grip of a dangerous monster they call the Demogorgon. They travel to another dimension, dubbed the Upside Down. They battle with countless other terrifying beasts and monsters, all while battling the normal challenges of life and growing up. Uh, the show is wonderfully written, skillfully acted, technically brilliant, and has an awesome 80s soundtrack. Uh, and is just overall a ton of fun to watch and enjoy. Uh, though I will acknowledge it's not for everyone, okay? Uh, there's plenty of inappropriate language in there. There's some, she some sexual themes and lots of like very dark, tense, and scary moments throughout the series. So all that said, why are we doing a, a series about Stranger Things? And what does it have to do with the Christmas story, right? Uh, well, each week of this series, we're going to look at a different way that these stories correlate. Uh, but today, we're going to focus on the fact that both the biblical Christmas story and the show Stranger Things have at their core some very strange characters. Pardon me. Uh, now, there's an outline for the message in your program. I invite you to take that out. You can use it to follow along, uh, take some notes if that's helpful for you. And I want to start by examining a vitally important but often overlooked, maybe even forgotten section of scripture that is directly connected to the Christmas story. Uh, and, but before I move on, I want to acknowledge uh, Dr. Ray Pritchard. Uh, he's a pastor and president of Keep Believing Ministries. He wrote a wonderful message some years ago about this particular chunk of scripture. And I want to be clear before I continue that much of what I'm going to share today is inspired by his words, uh, but by Dr. Pritchard. So I'm grateful for his wisdom uh, and his insight on this and for the chance to share it with you today. Uh, this forgotten chapter of the Christmas story is a genealogy, a list of names, most of them unpronounceable to anyone without an advanced seminary degree, myself included. Uh, and because of that, this portion of scripture we tend to overlook. We don't really know what to do with it, right? It's not often read in public. It, it, for that matter, we don't often read it in private unless you're going through like one of those read the whole Bible in a year plans or something like that. I personally do not know anyone who has this chunk of scripture memorized. Now, this forgotten scripture, oddly enough, are the very first words of the very first chapter of the very first book of the New Testament. Matthew 1, 1 through 16. 
It's just this long list of names, starting with Abraham, moving on to David, and then ending with Jesus. And in between are some names that you may recognize, like Jacob and Solomon, and many more we've never heard of, like Hezron, Abiud, and Azor, okay? Uh, it's quite an exhaustive list as well. It goes almost 50 generations, uh, and that's why it's abbreviated on your outline and on the screen. We'd need like 15 screens to get the whole thing on there. Uh, the structure of this verse is very simple. Uh, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, etc., etc. One name after the other, a listing of generations of Hebrew people from their father Abraham all the way down to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as history, the list is fascinating. But for most of us, that's about as far as it goes, right? Unless you happen to know the Old Testament. But even then, that may not help because some of the names that we find in Matthew 1, they're completely unknown to us. See, particularly the ones in the last few verses, because most of these men lived in a period of time that they call the intertestamental time, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so beyond their names in this list, we really don't know anything about them. If you're familiar with the King James Version of the Bible, uh, you remember this word begat used in place of the father of, right? Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah, so on and so on. And that strange word has been given way to many strange interpretations. Uh, one day, I remember a little boy, he comes home from Sunday school, excited about the lesson that he just learned. Uh, when his mother asked him what they talked about, the little boy goes, we learned all the forgots of the Bible. And the mom goes, the forgots? What are they? He says, you know, Abraham forgot Isaac, and Isaac forgot Jacob, and Jacob forgot Judah. <laughs> it was a very proud moment for the mom, I'm sure. Uh, so in that spirit, we may call this the forgotten chapter of the Christmas story. We routinely skip it in order to get to the good stuff, right? The meat of the Christmas story that comes at Matthew 1.17. So if it's just a list of names and lineage, what's the big deal? Like, why does this list of people matter? Why include it in the Bible? Well, there's several answers to that question. For starters, uh, the Jews of the first century would be very surprised by our attitude around this scripture. To them, the genealogy would have been absolutely essential in setting the story for the birth of Jesus. See, genealogy mattered a lot to the Jewish people. The Jews routinely paid close attention to questions of genealogy. Uh, for instance, whenever land was bought or sold, the genealog genealogical records, I'm going to stumble over that word a lot, I imagine, uh, were consulted to ensure that the land belonging to one tribe was not being sold to members of another tribe, and thus like destroying the integrity of the ancient boundaries of that land. You couldn't just put money down and take the deed. You had to also prove that your ancestors came from the same tribe that owned that land. Genealogy was also crucial in determining priesthood. Uh, the law specified that priests must come from the tribe of Levi. So genealogy also helped determine this line of heirship to a priesthood or the throne. Uh, as the Jews reestablished themselves in Israel, it was crucial that they knew which families had historically held which positions in the nation. But the same principle applies directly to the Christmas story. 
I want you to look at this scripture in Luke 2, verses 1 and 3. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to his own town to register. Right? So this meant that, that each man must return to his ancestral hometown, the town from which his family had originally come. But the only way you could be sure about what your ancestral hometown was, was to know your genealogy. Which is why Mary and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the ninth month of her pregnancy. They had to make that long and dangerous journey because Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral hometown. A fact that they knew from studying their genealogy. Additionally, Matthew 1, 1 through 16 confirms the prophecy that Jesus, the Savior, was a direct physical descendant of David. Now, to a skeptical Jewish reader, there's no question would have been more central in his mind. See, God had said a thousand years earlier that the Messiah must come from the line of David, and we see that in 2 Samuel 7. In the time of Christ, Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be the Messiah. There were others, imposters, that claimed to be Israel's Messiah. How would the people know who to believe? One answer, check his genealogy. If he's not from the line of David, forget it, he's not the Messiah. Okay, that's why Matthew 1 begins this way. It says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, David is listed first, even though chronologically Abraham would have been first. Why? Because the critical issue was not, is Jesus a son of Abraham, a Jew, but is Jesus in the line of David? Is he a direct descendant of David? See, in order for Jesus to qualify as the Messiah, he must be a direct, literal, physical descendant of David. So furthermore, this genealogical list acknowledges that Jesus has actual earthly roots, right? Like he didn't just pop out of the sky one day. Historians familiar with this period of time of Christ, they know that there was a widespread expectation at that time that something was going to happen. The now extinct religions of Greece and Rome, they held out hope that a deliverer would come from heaven. The Jews themselves knew that the Messiah would come according to the prophecies. The Persians studied the heavens and knew that the time was at hand. There was a desire, a, a hope, a yearning, a deep feeling throbbing in the heart of humanity that someone must appear who would radically change the world. They definitely weren't expecting Jesus specifically, but the yearning was undeniably there. And into that expectant world, God sent his son at just the right time and just the right way. See, Matthew 1 is telling us that Jesus Christ had roots. He had a family tree. He didn't just plop out of heaven. He, doesn't, he didn't magically appear on the scene. But at the perfect moment in history, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a human family with a human mother and a human father and a history. He's not some fictional character like the gods on Mount Olympus. That's what Matthew 1 is teaching us, that Jesus had roots and a history that he came from somewhere.
Lastly, I believe that this list in Matthew exists as a chronicle of the grace of God. If you study these names in detail, it's almost as if God has pulled together a rogues gallery, if you will. Uh, I've already said that I don't know about every person on this list, but one of the ones, or, but of the ones we do know about, nearly all of them had notable moral failures on their spiritual resumes. Uh, for instance, Abraham, he lied about his wife, Sarah. Isaac, he did the same thing. Jacob was a cheater. Judah, a fornicator. David, an adulterer and a murderer. And his son, Solomon, was a, poly a polygamist. Okay? Uh, Manasseh was among the most evil kings that Israel ever had. And we could go on and on. This is not a list of perfect saints. Far from it. In fact, the best of these men had serious flaws, and some were so flawed that it's nearly impossible to see anything good about them. So how does that show the grace of God? Friends, I believe that it shows God's amazing grace because people like that made up Jesus' family tree. A murderer, a fornicator, an adulterer, a liar, a deceiver, each of the men on that list are a mighty sinner. But the list isn't just men. It includes four women. Now that in and of itself is unusual because when the Jews made a genealogy, they typically did not include women. They just kind of traced the tree from one father to the son. But Matthew 1 includes four women in Jesus' family tree. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And all of them are very unlikely candidates to be on that list. With the exception of Ruth, none of them possessed an exemplary character. I want to tell you a little bit about him. Let's start with Tamar. Uh, her story, probably unknown to most of us, is found in Genesis 38. Tamar is the daughter-in-law uh, daughter of Judah, who is the son of Jacob, grandson of Abraham. Okay? You guys tracking all that? Maybe write it down. You know? <laughs> All you need to know is that Judah had a son named Ur who married a Gentile woman named Tam Tamar, okay? That's right there, marrying a Gentile kind of frowned on. Uh, Ur died, and his brother Onan rose up to do his brotherly duty of marrying Tamar. But then he too suddenly dies, and that leaves Tamar both husbandless and childless, which is kind of like a twin curse in that day. Like very, very big, shameful for her to be in that position even, Okay. So Tamar hatched a scheme to cause her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. Now her plan was simple. She dressed up like a shrine prostitute and seduced Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her. She does this, she becomes pregnant, and ends up giving birth to twin boys. No one really comes out smelling like roses in this story, uh, least of all Tamar. It, the whole thing kind of reeks of greed and deception, illegitimacy, prostitution, and even kind of a hint of incest in there. It's not a real fun story. Uh, but that's all we know about Tamar. There's no happy ending in this story. She's just kind of a footnote in biblical history, and an unsavory one at that. that. That people like Judah and Tamar would be included in the family tree of the Messiah sends a strong message about the pure grace of God. Neither one deserved it, but both are on the list. The second woman on the list, Rahab, uh, slightly more well-known than Tamar, though she is almost always mentioned in the Bible by a certain phrase, Rahab the harlot. 
Yeah, how would you like that to be your lineage when they're reading about you 3,000 years in the future, you know? Lance the jerk. Oh, man. Right? Not exactly how you want to go down in history, right? So this is Tamar the harlot. Uh, but that's not all. She, or sorry, Rahab the harlot. Rahab was also a Canaanite, right? They were like the most hated tribe in all of Israel. Uh, her most exemplary deed, the best thing that she did was tell a lie. I want you to think about that. A harlot, a Canaanite, and a liar. You would not think that she would have much of a chance of making the list, but there she is. Her story is tied in with the larger story of Joshua's conquest of the walls of Jericho. Uh, when Joshua sent spies into the city of Jericho, Rahab hid them in her house. In exchange for safe passage out of the city, they promised to spare her and her household when the invasion took place. All she had to do was hang a little scarlet cord from her window so the Israelites could identify her house and know where to go. She agreed. She hid the spies in her home until they could safely escape. Okay? It's a great story. There's a lot of lessons in it, but I don't want you to miss the point here that Rahab was a harlot. Okay? That was her trade. That was her profession. The men hid there because they knew that people in her city would be accustomed to seeing people coming and going out of her house at all hours of the night that that would not raise any eyebrows. We also can't deny the fact that Rahab lied when people came asking about, are the Israelites here? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, so is there anything good that we can say about her? Yes. She was a woman of faith. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. We see this in Hebrews 11, verse 31. It says, by faith, Rahab. See, friends, she was a believer. She had faith. And the lie that she told was motivated by her faith in God. When the invasion came, she and her family were spared. And in the course of time, she became the great-great-grandmother of King David. A harlot, a Canaanite, and a liar, but also a woman of faith. And she makes the list and becomes part of Jesus' family tree. The third female on the list is Ruth. Uh, the most significant point about Ruth is that she too was not a Jew. She was in fact from the country of Moab. And the Jews hated the Moabites and the Ammonites uh, and wanted nothing to do with them, okay? Uh, the book of the Bible which bears Ruth's name tells of the romance that blossomed between Ruth the Moabite and Boaz the Israelite. Uh, they were a very unlikely couple, but in God's providence, they were brought together in marriage. Now, they had a son named Obed who had a son named Jesse who had a son named David who later becomes king, making Ruth David's great-grandmother. And that's how a person from the hated nation of Moab entered the line of the Messiah. Now, the last woman, Bathsheba, is not mentioned by name. She's merely identified as the woman who had been Uriah's wife. And if you've been coming to Crossroads for the last year or so, we've talked about David and Bathsheba's story a number of times. Uh, so I won't go into the details of their lurid affair again. Suffice it to say that adultery was only the beginning of her story. Before the scandal was over, it included lying, a royal cover-up, and ultimately murder. And as a result, the child that they conceived the night of their adulterous affair uh, died soon after birth. And David's family and his empire began to crumble. Now, eventually, David marries Bathsheba, and they have another son, Solomon, who is dubbed the wisest man who ever lived. That's quite a result for a union that began in adultery. See, friends, there's dirt all over this episode. 
But don't miss the point. Bathsheba made the list. Her name isn't there, but she is mentioned nonetheless. Four unlikely women. Three are Gentiles. Three are involved in some form of sexual immorality. Two are involved in prostitution, and one is an adulteress. Yet all four are in the line that leads to Jesus Christ. Why would God include women like that in the list? But, but it's not just the women. As I said before, most of the men on that list were deeply flawed and broken as well. Why include people like that? Why put these people on the list? Well, there's a few reasons for that. Firstly, I think those people are included on the list to send a message. Matthew, the book of Matthew, was written especially to the Jews. Many of their leaders, the Pharisees in particular, were incredibly self-righteous and judgmental toward others. They truly thought they deserved eternal life, like they'd earned it by their actions. What a shock it would be to read this genealogy for them, because it was filled with liars and murderers and thieves and adulterers and harlots. It's not a picture. It's not a pretty picture. It is not a, a clean family tree. This list was a stinging rebuke to that kind of judgmental self-righteousness. Including these people on that list was a clear message that being a part of the family of God isn't something you can do on your own. You can't earn your way in. God's grace, it's bigger than we can imagine. And there's not a thing that we can do to win our place into his story. Jesus was born into a broken and sinful world in a broken and sinful family. He came from a long line of sinners, yet their names are all included among the family of Christ. They made the list, and so can you. Because another reason these people and their stories are a part of this list is to showcase God's amazing grace. If you come from a family like this, you're probably not going to be running around bragging about your heritage, right? Like, sure, your ancestors were rulers and kings, but they're also liars, cheats, fornicators, and murderers. Anyone else have a couple people like that in their family tree? Okay, thank God my hand's not the only one up. I felt a little lonely last night. And my mom was here, so that was awkward. <laughs> She's looking at me like, sorry. <laughs> When we read and hear the stories of the men and the women in this list, see, I don't think we're supposed to focus on their sin. I think rather we are supposed to focus on the grace of God. See, the hero of this story is God. His grace shines through the blackest of human sin as he chooses flawed men and women and places them right in the middle of Jesus' family tree. And he does the same for each of us. Lastly, I think this list of imperfect people serves to refocus us on Christ. I think many people are intimidated by Jesus Christ, or rather the idea of Jesus. 
I think a lot of us tend to associate him with like a lot of big religious paraphernalia and pomp and circumstance, you know, big sanctuaries and stained glasses and beautiful choirs and organs and formal prayers and all that other stuff. But when we look at all that, it can seem really intimidating. Like it's not graspable. I, I, I can't connect to that. To many in the world today, I think Jesus seems either to be an unreachable and re- irrelevant religious figure or simply too good to be true. This genealogy in the Bible is to let us know that he had a background a lot like yours and mine. He called himself the friend of sinners. And he didn't come to call the righteous, but he called sinners to repentance. In Luke 19.10, Jesus, speaking about himself, says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. I wonder if you're anything like me. When you read this list and you hear the stories about the people on there and you wonder, how? Like, how can God use someone that's so broken? How could God use someone like me to do anything of value in his kingdom? Friends, I constantly have to remind myself And I want to remind each of you today, while I'm at it, that with the singular exception of Christ himself, using flawed, broken, imperfect people to do his will is literally the only thing our God has ever done. I know this because I've seen it all around me my entire life. I'm a living example of it myself. Much like in the show, Stranger Things, the cast of characters is anything but perfect, right? I mean, the heart of the show is a group of foul-mouthed middle school boys uh, accompanied by a, a young girl with superpowers whose life to that point had been lived in a laboratory, and then they lead the charge to save their town from the forces of darkness. Uh, and the people helping them aren't exactly the most likely candidate for hero's work either, okay? You've got a single mom with a history of mental health issues, a quirky police chief who struggles with alcoholism after the loss, uh, the mysterious loss of his family, uh, a popular jock with a bad attitude, a stubborn and manipulative girl with a penchant for lying, and a socially awkward boy who spends most of his time behind the lens of a camera. See, none of these people are the heroes you'd expect, yet they are somehow able to do incredible things. I'm wearing Hopper's badge and shirt today. Here's this kind of sad, lonely, broken man. He's just kind of drinking his way through the day today. When all of a sudden, these crazy things start happening in Hawkins. And amidst the chaos of all these wild goings on, he meets these kids and he meets Eleven, or L for short. Over time, they develop a mutual trust And he creates a safe place for her to live where she won't be found by the people that are searching for her. He takes her in. He cares for her. He treats her like his own daughter, like a member of his family. He's not perfect. He's broken. He doesn't always know what to do or even how to talk with Elle. And he doesn't always get it right. But even in his brokenness and imperfections, He does something incredible that changes his life and Elle's life and many others for the better. 
Friends, the same is true for you and me. God can and will do incredible things through us when we open ourselves to his leading. And how do we do that? We have to start by listening to God. We listen to God. Friends, if God is going to speak to us, we better darn well be listening, right? And how does God speak to us? Well, what I've seen is that God tends to speak to us through his word, the Bible. Uh, When we read about what God has done, he reminds us about his presence in our lives, and he speaks to us through that. God also speaks to us through prayer. When we take the time to pray privately with God, let's make sure that we don't spend all of our time talking, right? Like, of course, it's important to talk to God, to tell him the concerns of your heart and mind, ask for his help or, or praise him for all that he's done in your life. Uh, But we also need to allow space for him to talk to us through the Holy Spirit. I I talked a few weeks ago about building those rhythms of silence into our lives. You guys remember that? Those times are critical to give God space to speak to us. And God also speaks to us through others, through people, uh, through wise words and counsel of trusted family and friends and leaders Uh, And occasionally, sometimes, God also speaks through pastors, just saying. Uh, When we're in a season of spiritual drought and you feel like you're not hearing from God, I'd encourage you to speak to someone in your life that you can trust, and they may have a word of wisdom for you. God may just use them to speak hope and light into your life. Now, once we're listening we will begin to sense God directing us to do things or or to move in a specific direction. And when that happens, we need to respond. So we say yes to God. We need to say yes to God. Now, I want to recognize that is not always easy because more often than not, what God is going to ask us to do will take us out of our comfort zone. Okay? What God guides us to will cost us something. Following God's call means sacrifice. It means surrendering your own ambitions and wants and desires and releasing them to God, saying, Jesus, no matter what the cost, I'm going to follow you because I believe that you are who you say you are and that you love me and you want what's best for me. We must say yes to God's guidance in our lives. But just saying yes isn't the end of it, right? Once we respond with our hearts and minds, we must also follow through on that with our actions. So we must go where God guides. You can say yes all day long, but if your feet don't start moving, it ain't going to do you a lick of good. And again, I recognize this is not easy. It means knowingly walking into uncomfortable situations. It means speaking out when it would be easier to stay silent. It means going out of your way to do things that to the world may seem unnecessary or unwise or unpleasant or or countercultural. It means attempting things that seem impossible to us. And if it just was us, they would be impossible. But because of God, somehow, the impossible becomes tangibly real. Friends, following God's direction for our lives is the only way I know 
to be filled to the brim with hope and love and eternal purpose. No matter what your past looks like or your present feels like, no matter where you've been or what you've done, God can give you a fresh start. This unlikely people, this unlikely list of unlikely people in Matthew 1, it may be the greatest chapter on the grace of God in all of the Bible. In these forgotten names from the past, God turns the spotlight on his holy grace on the fallen men and women. And through their lives, we see what the grace of God can do. Friends, it's good news. And as strange as it may seem, the worse you are, the better candidate you are for the grace of God. He came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to make you religious. He came to have a relationship. He didn't come to make you pious. He came to save you from your sins. He didn't come for a moral reformation. He came to give you eternal salvation. Friends, I want to encourage you today. Don't let your insecurities hold you back. You're not too young. You're not too old. You're not too inexperienced. You're not too broke. You're not too broken. You're not too weak or sick or hurting or anything at all. Nothing you've ever done, no issue you're struggling with is so big that it takes you beyond the reach of God's amazing love and grace. See, we look at the list of people in Matthew 1 and we just see them for what they've done. And for most of them, that's not a pretty picture. But when God looks at them and when he looks at us, he sees what we've done, but he also sees who we are, his children, his beautiful creation, his masterpiece. He sees the sinful, broken, stupid, awful things we've done and said. He sees every shortcoming and failure, and he loves us and accepts us and welcomes us into his family and calls us his own. I wonder if you've heard that God call in your life. If you've felt that nudge. If you've experienced that spiritual push to step up. Maybe God's calling you to be the peacemaker in a relationship, even though it's not your fault. I wonder if maybe he's calling you to step up in a new way where you work. Maybe there's something going on in your family and God's telling you, hey, you need to get involved. I wonder if maybe God's challenging you to serve here at church or, or in the community. If you've sensed God prompting you to act and you haven't done it yet, friends, I gotta tell you, stop letting these other things get in the way of living out God's purpose for your life. Don't let those insecurities hold you back anymore. Strive to see yourself through the eyes of God. You are more than your sin. 
You are more than your failures. You are more than your mistakes. You are a beautiful child of God, and he wants to use you exactly as you are today. Just listen. Be open. Say yes. And go where he guides. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you don't expect us to be perfect. <coughs> thank you that strange and broken as we are, you love us and call us your children. Help us to hear your voice in our lives and to respond to your leading, God. We want to say yes to you and your will for our lives, Lord. Would you help us to see past our own weaknesses and failures and shortcomings and to see ourselves through your eyes? We ask that you would use us in accordance with your perfect plan, Father. We thank you for your great love and grace, and we love and praise you today. We pray it in Christ's name.